Once again, good morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to the first chapter in the Gospel of John. And we will read. I would like to read verses 1 through 14. This is God's word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not that light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in the name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now begging for your help. We beg you to send your Spirit to enlighten us from your word so that each and every person here would see this true light that is the life of men and see him in a saving way. Father, protect us from wrong thoughts about you and about your Christ. We ask in his holy name. Amen. Well, this Advent season, we have purposed to look at the Christ of Christmas from four different angles. The first was a look at the Messiah of promise. Brother Ryan preached a sermon from Isaiah 11 and showed us throughout the Old Testament that the Messiah had been promised. And that goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15, at the fall of man, when God is cursing the serpent and he gives the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And so all throughout the Old Testament, now we have a a progressive revelation and prophecy of the coming Messiah. Last Lord's Day, we looked at the Messianic mission from Revelation chapter 5 and how Christ accomplished his mission and is accomplishing his mission and will accomplish his mission successfully. Today, we will look at the Messiah's arrival 
and the implications of his taking on flesh. And of course, next week, our Lord willing, we will consider the Messiah's message, the message that he came bringing his people. <clears throat> to introduce the topic, I'm going to read a quote by Dr. Sam Waldron, who is the Dean of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. He writes, the doctrine of the person of Christ dominated the attention of the church for the first eight centuries. This shows how important it is for the Christian church. One reason it required such a long time for the church to formulate clearly the doctrine of Christ's person is that it is one of the mysteries of the faith, end quote. We're not just looking at the Messiah's arrival here this morning as his birth, but we're looking at God becoming flesh. And so the great, wonderful mystery of the incarnation. This is such a crucial and important doctrine of the Christian church. It is also a very dangerous subject to approach. I think I approached it rather lightly and maybe even arrogantly at first. But the deeper I got into this study, the more I uh, was in fear and trembling because of this great mystery. It's very easy, very easy to think wrong thoughts about God. And those wrong thoughts about God are idolatry. So it is a difficult subject. It is a mystery. And at the end of the day, dear ones, we need to let mysteries remain mysteries especially the mysteries of God. Now, there, there are other mysteries that we can search out and maybe come up with answers for, but not the mysteries of God. As a matter of fact, God's word tells us the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Okay? That, that doesn't mean they belong to us. They belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Deuteronomy 29, 29. It is not my goal or purpose to join the ranks of the many that have tried and failed to explain this mystery of the incarnation of the second person of the Holy Trinity. I simply want to present you what Scripture teach, what Scriptures teach concerning this great truth. It is my hope and prayer that as we consider this wonderful topic, that God will strengthen our faith in his divine purposes and that we will reach a higher level of understanding and appreciation for his covenant of redemption and that we will have a much deeper and meaningful love for and relationship with Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior, our King. We will look at this topic in four sections. In section A, we will consider the Messiah's arrival, his birth. In section B, we will consider the absolute necessity of the incarnation. In section C, we will ponder the great mystery of the incarnation. And in section D, we will marvel at the miracle of the incarnation. 
And so with that said, let's get into this. So when the Messiah arrives, it's not like somebody getting off the bus at the bus station or the train station or the airport. It it was a birth, but it was so much more than a birth. We have births every day, whether they be animals, creatures, humans. We have births every day. And this was a birth, but it's, it was different. So we see the Messiah's humble arrival. You know, there's a lot of reasons why, why Christ's time here on earth was called his humiliation. I think this speaks to that. We see in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, taking on the likeness of frail mankind as King of kings and Lord of lords, was not born to royalty, but to an unmarried peasant girl. She was engaged, but she was not yet married. In other words, they had not consummated their marriage. He was not clothed in rich kingly garments, but was wrapped in rags. He was not housed in a royal mansion and laid in an ornately jeweled crib, but was laid in a feed trough, an animal's feed trough, in a barn. And thus the Messiah arrives. We see the Messiah's arrival announced in Luke's gospel. We know the story. The shepherds are out watching the sheep sheep at night. And then an angel appears and gives them this announcement. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And of course, we know then the, the angelic hosts, we, we like to think, burst forth in song, uh, even though it says, and they said, but we like to believe that this was a song of praise, praising God. I, I want to insert this here too. Those angels that announced Christ's arrival, those, uh, the angel that talked to Joseph, the angel that talked to the shepherds, those angels that were praising God, they don't understand the mystery of the Incarnation. Okay, so if they don't, and they serve in the very presence of God, and they are sinless, how much less would we understand it? We see Christ's arrival announced. It it was not announced to all the world. It was not uh, even to all of Israel. His arrival was not even announced to the religious leaders or to the king. His arrival was announced to a small group of shepherds, out in the middle of nowhere. And of course, not speaking of the angels' celebration, we see the Messiah's arrival celebrated in Luke's gospel again. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. You know, Simon, the old man in the temple, 
According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And so we see the Messiah's arrival, not celebrated in the streets of Jerusalem, or shouted from the, from the housetops, not celebrated in the nation of Israel, but celebrated by one old man in a temple. Thus begins his condescension, his humility. We see a, a very humble arrival for the second person of the Godhead. And now we will look at the absolute necessity of the incarnation. Now we understand that because of, we heard about what his mission was, why, why he had to come to this earth, but do we understand all of that? You see, the problem in all of Adam's posterity is sin and death through sin. You know, this is not just an uncomfortable nuisance, but it's a deadly scourge. It is an inescapable reality. And because of sin, we die, just as God promised in Genesis chapter 2. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. And yes, Adam and Eve died that day spiritually. And all of their offspring are born spiritually dead until or unless God intervenes on their behalf. We read in Romans chapter 5, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Why was the incarnation absolutely necessary? Let me ask you this. Why was the blood of bulls and goats not sufficient to atone for sin? I mean, the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no atonement for sin, right? Why was the blood of bulls and goats not sufficient? And I know what you're saying because they were not the Messiah, right? I would submit to you this. They were not human. They didn't sin in the garden. They are not federally representing anyone. They were mere types pointing to the anti-type who is Christ. And so it was man who sinned. It is man who must pay the penalty. But if the Messiah was just a man, if he was just a man, he couldn't atone for anyone's sins. Even if he was perfect himself, let alone. He couldn't 
he he would not be able to atone for his own sins if he had sins. If he had sins, then he wouldn't be a Messiah anyways. Even if he was perfect and sinless, he could not atone for the sins of others. The Messiah must be God as well as man. And so we see the absolute necessity of the incarnation. You see, man by himself could not stand up under the wrath of God without being destroyed. And that's what hell is. Eternal wrath and suffering. And there's no coming back from that. And if the Messiah was just a man, there would be no coming back from that. He must be God as well as man. Waldron writes, only one who is both God and man could be a substitute for men. And in a few short hours on the cross, satisfy the wrath of an infinite God. Think of that. I mean, if... If I go to hell because of my sins, and I'm there for eternity because I can never fully pay the price for my sins, how could all of God's people's sins be paid for and satisfy God in just a few short hours? It must be God, and it must be man. And so the Messiah, the the Messiah that was promised, must be both God and man. And that brings us, dear ones, to the unsearchable mystery of the incarnation, because how can one person be both God and man? The Bible says in the word, okay, which word? The word that was with God in the beginning, the word that was God. The word that created everything. The word became flesh. Humanity. And dwelt among us. A tabernacled with us. And I would tell you now, I don't think that's stopped. Christ is still tabernacling with us. Why? Because he is still in the flesh. Maybe not here present physically, but for all eternity, Christ will be in the flesh forever, the God-man. And so he's still tabernacling with us. What does it mean that God became flesh? When trying to understand this, I think we do better to, to look at all those things that it does not mean, okay? It's easier to to put forth that information because we're safe. (laughs) We're safe doing that. Now I'm going to list some of the old heresies. They're still around, maybe under different names now, but Eutychianism, Eutychianism. Jesus of Nazareth was not a mixture of God and man. Some wrongly think that he was like 50% God, 50% man, 
or, or a mixture of God and man together in one body. Now, that sounds plausible, right? This sounds, I mean, hey, that would explain the mystery. But that's not the case. That's a heresy. Why? What's the problem with that? To say that Jesus was half God and half man is to say that he was neither. He was neither. He couldn't be half God and half man and be either one. If he's only half God, he's not God. And if he's only half man, he's not human. Where do we see this? Greek mythology, Hercules, one of the gods, I can't remember which one, I don't think it's important, cohabited with a, with a human woman, and the, and the corresponding offspring was half God and half man. He was stronger than men, but not as powerful as the gods, right? What a myth. That's not Jesus of Nazareth. There was no mixture of divinity with humanity. You know, another thing that that, that, that belief attacks is, is it attacks the eternal trinity. Because if one person of the trinity becomes less than God, and God is one, then there's no holy trinity. There is no God. It's an, or... Or you would have to believe in tritheism and say only one person of the Trinity was affected. And and that's not right either. There's not three different gods. That's the mystery of the Trinity. You see, God is much mystery, is he not? I, I tell you this, I don't want a God that I can understand. Because he's like me then, right? He's not God. I, I, I'm happy that God is, is uh, so far and above what I can comprehend. And I'll just stick to what he reveals of himself. And so we, we say that Jesus was not a mixture, a mixture of God and man. Jesus was not two separate persons inhabiting one body. The Nestorian heresy, that there was the person of the Son of God and the person of the Son of Man inhabiting one body and therefore being the Messiah. This is a concept of cohabitation, right? If you see a house and it's empty, you say, well, that house is uninhabited. And then somebody moves into the house. Now the house is inhabited. And if a second person moves in, now it's cohabited, right? Cohabitation. That is not what took place with the incarnation. In June, uh, in the June issue of uh, 2018, uh, League in Your Table Talk, uh, we read this. Speaking on, a, it has a section on this heresy. The errors of Nestorianism become evident when we reflect on the atonement. You have to keep in mind with the incarnation, it happens because there's something in view here. It doesn't happen just to happen. There's a mission, as we heard last Lord's Day. If Christ is two persons, who died on the cross? It cannot be the infinite divine person of the Son, For he has not assumed the human nature. 
He possesses only a divine nature, which cannot experience suffering. So it must have been the human person who suffered and died, because the human person in Christ has a human nature, which can experience suffering. But then we have the death only of a finite person. For human persons are finite. And the merit of a finite human sacrifice could hardly be applied to anyone besides the finite person who offers it. End quote. No, Jesus was not two persons. Christ was not Jesus of Nazareth in the human body and the divine Son of God in the human body at the same time. This was not a cohabitation. You can see where this could be dangerous, right? I mean, our, our minds can go just off. I mean, we see that when people try to explain the Trinity, right? So, no, Jesus was not two separate persons in one body. You'll see later on the, the wording that church history <clears throat> and even our Baptist forefathers used to try to explain this. <clears throat> Jesus was not simply a man given special powers by God to accomplish his mission, Arianism. Okay? Arianism taught that he was just a man. There was no divinity. The Arian heresy denied the divinity of Jesus. And, and consequently, with all these heresies, that's what took the church so long to actually come up with a, a, a stab at an explanation, right? They, they were dealing with these heresies, and every time they dealt with a heresy, they'd have to further define what they believed Scripture was teaching about this doctrine, about the person of Christ. Arianism, they taught that he was the preeminent creation of God. He wasn't God, but he was, a, he was like the highest created being and, and was endowed with special powers to accomplish God's mission here on earth. But he was not God. Well, we run back into the same problem then. If he was not God, then his sacrifice would not have been acceptable to God. And Scripture is very clear that Jesus is God. We just read it in the first verse and the second verse of the Apostle, of the, the Gospel of John. Jesus was not just a divine appearance of a man, which is docetism. One of the earliest heresies to plague the church was docetism, which claimed that Jesus' body was not real but an illusion. What does that kind of make us think of? How about all the Old Testament theophanies, right? Jesus was not a New Testament theophany. He was not just an appearance of a man. Now, I think, and, and I could be wrong, I think that's what the theophanies in the Old Testament were, God appearing as a man, but not actually being flesh, okay, because he did not become flesh until the fullness of time and the incarnation. This was not a theophany. As a matter of fact, this heresy happened early enough to be written about 
in Scripture. Second, John 1.7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. He was writing about that heresy, docetus. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. And so, no, Jesus was not just an appearance. He was not a divine being just appearing as a man. What would be the problem with that? Think of the atonement again. Who must pay for man's sin? It must be a man, a human being. And finally, as far as what this does not mean, Jesus was not a human body with a divine soul. That's Apollinarianism. Again, I'll take an excerpt from the Table Talk magazine. I, I guess in June of 2018, I guess that was the topics dealing with all these different heresies. You can get a copy of that. It would do you well to read that. They're right. Apollinarius effectively denied that the seat of rational thought in our Savior is truly human. He compromised Jesus' true humanity by, by denying that he possessed a human mind or soul. Since the human mind or soul is an essential component that makes human beings human. And by excuse me, and by compromising Jesus' humanity. Apollinarianism gives us a savior who cannot save us. Animal sacrifices could not truly atone for sin because they are not human. If Jesus does not possess a human soul, then he is not truly human and thus cannot atone for the sin of other humans. See, a lot of these heresies run into the same problem, don't they? When it comes to the atonement. I think... Uh, also, uh, Apollinaris had a wrong view of the makeup of humans, and that's how he went off into this. Okay, we, we believe that Scripture teaches the dichotomy, right? We have body, which is physical, and we have soul, which is the seat of the, the mind, you know, the, of who we are. Well, he taught that there was a, uh, a body, and then there was a lower soul, which was just like the life, you know, what, what kept you alive. And then there was a, a higher spirit, which is the seed of, you know, where you thought and, and how you, you know, who you were. So he, he taught a trichotomy of the humanity. And so he said, Jesus of Nazareth had the, the, the body of a human. And he had the lower soul of a human, which was just, just life. But he had the spirit, the higher spirit of divinity. So, and that would make him not human. And of course, the Bible doesn't teach of a trichotomy in the humanity, but a, but a dichotomy. We have a body and soul. <clears throat> so then we have briefly taken a look at what the <clears throat> incarnation was not, what did not take place <clears throat> when the word became flesh. You, if you would, turn in the back of the Trinity Hymnal to page 674. <clears throat> and we're going to read what the, our confession says about this. 
It's on Christ the Mediator, uh, paragraph two. Page 674. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. And so she was made, and so, excuse me, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the scriptures, so that, Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. See how carefully they worded this subject. Who is it that became flesh? The Word, the eternal Word, the second person of the Holy Trinity. The Apostle John speaks to the words eternity, eternality by saying that he was with God in the beginning. But why is the Word eternal? Because he is God. He is not just God, but he is creator God. And so in our confession, it says two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. Not two persons in one body. That's something totally different. But two natures in one person. Now, one of the mysteries of the incarnation, it's not. I guess that great of a mystery because we have other examples in there. What did Christ, what did God do in his divine nature in the incarnation? Masked his glory. Okay. We have a picture of that in Exodus. Remember Moses is on the mountain. Show me your glory. He says to God. What did God tell him? No man can see my face and live. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to mask my glory from you for your protection, and I'll show you a portion of it. I would submit to you this. Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration didn't reveal his whole glory. He revealed some of it. But guess what? Peter, James, and John weren't weren't consumed. And so in the incarnation, the divine takes on human flesh, masks his glory, okay? Doesn't doesn't relinquish any of his divinity. You know, a lot of times we can get the wrong idea and say, well, he set it aside, right? I mean, 
kind of the language Paul's using in Philippians 2, right? But he's not saying that he relinquished any of his godness. He is still, as our confession says, truly God. And so that's hard for us to comprehend because we're finite creatures. Remember, we, we can't really picture that. There's no, I don't think there's any thing that we could use to imagine that. How, how do you have two natures in one body? And that, that's the mystery. Okay, how, how can a human body contain an infinite God? That's a mystery. We have numerous New Testament scriptures that tell of Christ's divinity. So we know that he, he did not give up his divinity. One such verse we find in John's gospel account, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He claimed to be God. Right? You remember the story? Well, God, who do I tell the people sent me? Tell them I am that I am. Yahweh, the name of God. And Jesus says that's who he is. Now we know that angels never never permitted people to worship them. Jesus, on the other hand, permitted people to worship him, which would have been wrong if he was just a man. Then he would have been sinning by receiving worship as a man. We know Thomas, his great, his famous words, you know, he, He's called Doubting Thomas, but he has one of the best declarations of Christ in Scripture. He cries out, my Lord and my God. Not just Master or not just Lord Adonai, Teacher, but my Lord and my God. Did Jesus scold him? Did he correct him? No, he said, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. He pronounced a blessing. We also have numerous passages that so show Jesus was truly human. He was truly man. What are those passages? Well, he experienced hunger, thirst, exhaustion, sorrow, weariness of soul, anger, and fear. And, and we see the culmination of all that really in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he, he sweat great drops of blood, as it were, and he was in great fear and anguish. And, and he pleaded with his disciples to pray with him. And then he, he pleaded with the Father if, if this is possible, remove this cup from me. That was his humanity. He feared because he understood what was about to take place. He understood what was in the cup. The fierce wrath of God. He understood that he was going to become the vilest, filthiest thing that has ever been in existence. And that is the, the compilation of 
all the sins of God's people in one person. Can you imagine that? Now, Jesus was a man. He feared. He was, he knew what it was to, to suffer. He was tempted. Okay, so don't think when you're tempted, you're sinning. You're not sinning until you give in to that temptation because Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are. And yet he was without sin. Jesus was truly God, truly man. And that's what makes the success of his mission possible. Notice the wording, without conversion, composition, or confusion, the two natures did not mix. The the divine nature did not take on human characteristics, and the human nature did not take on divine characteristics. They were two distinct natures, one person. Because if there's a mixture, as we've already discussed, any, any humanity mixing with divine takes away from divinity. Any divine mixing with, with humanity makes you more than human. Other than human, I would say. Not more than, other than. And so those, our Baptist forefathers are very careful in their wording to describe this mystery without actually making it where we can understand it, right? (laughs) Because all these descriptions are true, and yet we can't comprehend how they can be true. How can they be true? J.I. Packer, in his little book, which we are going to use in our small groups starting in January, uh, J.I. Packer's Concise Theology, uh, each little section of theology is like one or two pages. Each chapter is short. It's clear, concise, and and you get the doctrine. He writes, Trinity and incarnation belong together. The doctrine of the Trinity declares that the man Jesus is divine. That of the incarnation declares that the divine Jesus is truly human. Together they proclaim the full reality of the Savior, whom the New Testament sets forth, the Son who came from the Father's side at the Father's will to become the sinner's substitute on the cross. End quote. Finite human minds cannot understand how one person in one body can be truly God and at the same time truly man. This great mystery we must accept by faith. Yes, we will understand it better when we get to heaven, but I submit we will never fully grasp it because it is forever beyond the bounds of finite minds, even in eternity. The secret things belong to the Lord. Suffice it to say, if you don't take anything from this sermon, take this. He was truly God and truly man and truly a wonderful Savior. That brings us to the miracle of the incarnation. We read in Matthew. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, 
Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And so we have the doctrine of the virgin birth. The virgin birth fulfilled prophecy. Remember Isaiah chapter 7? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The prophecy, one of the promises of the coming Messiah said this will be a sign. He will be born of a virgin. Now, we can't understand how that happens, can we? I mean, that doesn't happen. That's not possible. It's not physically possible within human, within the realm of humanity, right? But this is the miracle of the incarnation. This is how the word becomes flesh and tabernacles with us. Why was the virgin birth necessary? Why couldn't God do this any other way? Because Adam's sin nature is passed down from generation to generation through the seed of man. And so everyone who was born of man, a man and a woman, is born with Adam's sin nature. It cannot be escaped. And so the Christ, to be the spotless Lamb of God, could not be born with this sin nature. And that's why the doctrine of the virgin birth is so important. That's why the virgin birth is so important. If, it's, if he's going to be the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, then he must be spotless. So he couldn't be born like you and I. We are born already under the condemnation of sin because we have a sin nature. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. You don't have to teach a child what's wrong. They will automatically do things that are wrong. You have to teach them what is right to counter their natural inclinations. Have you ever seen a, a, a toddler throw a fit? It's been well said if that 18-month-old had the strength of an 18-year-old, they'd kill you where you stood. That's just their nature. And so we spend the rest of the, our children's life trying to teach them to go contrary to that nature because we raise them in, in the admonition and training of the Lord, right? No, the virgin birth was necessary. The virgin birth was miraculous. You know, even, even in the, the miraculous nature of the birth of Isaac, we don't see the same miraculous nature as of the virgin birth. Because even though Isaac's birth was a miracle, he was born of a man and a woman. This child that was conceived in, in Mary's womb was conceived by the power of the living God through the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. In conclusion, let's read Paul's definition of the incarnation and the resulting events. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who through 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Dear ones, this is what we celebrate at Christmas. We don't just celebrate a baby in a manger, but we celebrate God in a manger. But God didn't stay in the manger. I was watching, a, and I'm not even going to mention the name of the movie, but I was started, started watching this movie. And they were meeting for Christmas dinner. And the person saying the blessing started praying to baby Jesus, and I turned it off. I said, that is just sacrilegious. He didn't stay in that manger. He grew up to manhood, and then he died on a cross. You see, without the cross, there's no manger. Because the manger is not the significance, but the cross is. Now, the manger is significant because that's the, the incarnation of God. But that's not the mission. The cross is the mission. And, and, and Paul says that. He, he didn't just be born as, as a baby but he fulfilled his mission. He continued his humiliation even to the point of death on a cross, the most humiliating form of death. And by the way, it wasn't just his physical death on the cross. It was him taking on sin for us. And the results were that he was highly exalted above everything else in creation and given a name above every other name and that every knee should bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord. If you have not yet placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not in a saving relationship with this wonderful incarnate God-man, then all you have to look forward to is eternity in hell, paying the penalty for your sins. You are still spiritually dead. And if you physically die in this helpless state, there's no coming back from that. Hell is eternal. Hell is the wrath of Almighty God. Nothing is more important for you than the gospel message. Jesus came to die for sinners. God became man. God took on human flesh to save sinners. And only through him can you have the hope of forgiveness and eternal life. He promises that if you will flee to Christ in humble repentance and faith, he will save you. 
Jesus says this. Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will no wise cast out any. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Flee to Christ in humble repentance and faith, and he will save you. There is no greater gift that you can receive at Christmas or any other time in your life than the gift of life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And by the way, that's the the only gift that that has any importance. Because everything else is just, as Paul says, rubbish if you don't have Christ. Dear saints, those of you who do know the Lord, this Christmas season, let us praise God for the birth of our Messiah. Let us praise God for his infinite wisdom, power, love, and justice revealed to us in the divine mystery of the incarnation. I leave you to contemplate these words of Scripture. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would pour out your grace upon us now. That you would be merciful to all present. And that you would give us an overabounding joy knowing that we are in Christ. And that this Christmas season, that we would be uh, very thankful for the reality of the incarnation, for the results of the incarnation, which make us look all the more for the consummation. Keep us in Christ. For it's in his name I pray. Amen.